Welcome to Volume 7 of Divers Down. Chapter 9 Divers Down. Kip Morgan walked the deck of the westward, not noticing the fading stars or the gray glow of coming dawn. The others were still in the dream filled shadows of sleep, but he was too keyed up to relax. The westward and the Holokai were lashed side by side at anchor over the wreck of the Ilikai. At 8 o'clock sharp, Project Kahuna's recovery phase would get underway, and, once started, it would continue to the finish. Only a sudden storm or serious accident could stop it, and neither was likely. The Ilikai mob, as the kids now proudly called themselves, was at high pitch, like a good ball team before an important game. They had built a cradle of plastic, wire mesh, and pipe frame around a wire mock-up of the Ilikai first on land and then under the water off Mackay Pier. They had practiced with the sand sucker hose, filled two oil drums underwater with urethane foam, and rescued blocks of lava the size of Kane. Kip had no serious doubts about how well the mob would perform. Each kid knew his or her job and knew it well, and practice had knit them into a smoothly operating team. His tension would have been no more than normal, except for the mystery of Willis McKay. When he reported Umi's sighting of McKay and friends, Pete had checked with Tap Pryor and found that the Makapu'u chief had already been busy investigating. Willis and two friends had indeed been to Hana, flying down by Royal Hawaiian Air Service. Kip hadn't known, and apparently Willis hadn't either, that the island's airline was a part of the Oceanic Foundation's group of Makai companies. It took only a phone call for Tap to find out that Willis had stayed two days, had paid large, overweight charges for three sets of triple-tank scuba gear, and had been sick or injured when he flew back to Honolulu. The obvious conclusion was that Willis had been diving for the Ilikai, but the airline staff had not seen him or his friends carry anything unusual away with them. Kip didn't know what it all meant, and he was worried. He knew Willis was not so stupid as to intentionally damage the Ilikai or Kane. At least he thought he knew. He walked past the bulky cylinder of a DDC, a deck decompression chamber, just ahead of the schooner's mainmast. Rigged to the boon on the foremast was a related piece of equipment, a PTC, or a personal transfer capsule. Kip had been concerned about having the four aquanauts go through 20 hours of decompression in the crowded bubble machine. An abrupt change of weather, failure of equipment, or a slip on someone's part, and they might be hurt. Expressing his fears to Pete, he asked if a PTC could be obtained. The aquanauts could be brought up in the PTC, which would then be mated to the DDC, allowing them to remain under pressure until they were decompressing comfortably in the big deck chamber. In his offhand way, Pete allowed that a PTC might be obtained. Tony Angelo had produced one so fast that Kip was sure the adults must have been planning it that way and had been waiting for him to realize a PTC was needed. If he hadn't thought of it himself, Pete would have simply asked one of his leading questions. The Mackay engineer was like that. Not once had he given Kip an order or made a direct suggestion. His technique was to ask questions. That's a good list of tools for the pipe frame, Kip, he had said. Just enough. Do you plan to have the team take turns if somebody loses a wrench in the sand then? 
Kip had promptly expanded all tool lists to cover such contingencies. I like that team plan. The procedures are very well integrated. Has Sato trained alternates in case of an upset stomach in the group? Now a sprained ankle or a case of indigestion would no longer throw a trained team off schedule. Kip shuddered to think what might have ensued without Pete's questions. He, Kip, was project engineer, yes, but he had no illusions about how successful he would have been without Pete. Each question had shown him some defect or omission in his plan. Only when Pete stopped asking questions was Kip sure that Project Kahuna was ready. He walked to the rail and looked over at the Holokai. On the horizon, fair weather clouds were pink with the first light of sunrise. The ship took on a rosy glow that was reflected in the clear plastic end of the bubble machine, resting on the afterdeck and ready to be lowered. The Mackay engineers had it scheduled for a demonstration at La Haina near the other end of the island in four days. The Holokai would tow it there, leave it behind long enough to carry the Ilakai and Kane to Makapu'u, then return to Maui to support the demonstration. Kip wished he could work from the habitat, but he had known from the first that it couldn't be. After a hundred minutes on the bottom, the habitat team would be prisoners of pressure, unable to return to surface conditions until they went through the required decompression period. Time needed for decompression would lengthen until, by tomorrow morning at this time, the aquanauts' body tissues would be loaded with all the nitrogen they could absorb. In the language of diving, they would be saturated. From then on, the time needed for decompression would remain the same, no matter how long they stayed down. The sun was climbing rapidly now. Kip went below for breakfast. If all went as planned, he and Julie should have little to do. The teams would do it all. But he would have to be available every minute because they would look to him for decisions and solutions to any problems that could arise. If a problem arose, Julie would have to be consulted. She would also supervise the raising of Kane with her own team and maintain the operations checklist. Julie, Ann, Carol, Ski, and Umi were already having bacon and eggs. Kip slid in on the bench and greeted them. Julie's lifted eyebrows said silently, I thought you were going to get plenty of sleep. And his slight shrug replied, Tried, but I couldn't. One by one, the others arrived. As they finished breakfast, they vanished again. Kip knew the team leaders were reassuring themselves that supplies and equipment were still ready. The divers were making final checks on their tools and gear. All except Kip were in swimsuits. The girls wore one-piece suits instead of bikinis, more sensible and a bit warmer for hard work on the bottom. The four aquanauts had stowed foam neoprene wetsuits in the habitat to be worn if they got chilled after hours in the water. Kip went to put on his own trunks, mentally reviewing the sequence of coming events. He could sense the tension in the air, even though the mob was playing it cool. The usual loose, cheerful chatter had been mostly absent at breakfast. At a quarter past seven, they moved to the Holokai. Pete was having a cup of coffee in the bow. He greeted Kip cheerfully. Weather okay? Kip had checked the weather reports on the marine and aircraft radio bands at intervals for the past three days. No changes in sight for at least three days, Pete. Pete didn't need to ask if everything was ready. He knew his mob, and he understood Kip far better than Kip suspected. The whole mob had appeared like magic. The preparation had been so thorough that there was little to do, but they were all rechecking anyway. Kip could feel the mounting tension as the minutes ticked away. 
He began to feel as though a swarm of bees had invaded his stomach. As the clock reached 7.30, the Holokai crew lowered the bubble machine into the water. It rode high on its twin hulls, bobbing a little on the waves. On the westward, Tony Angelo signaled, and the personal transfer capsule was swung over the water, ready for instant use. Tony checked it over, then crossed to the Holokai. Tap Pryor arrived in a motorboat. He boarded the Holokai and walked around, shaking hands with each of the mob and wishing them good hunting. To Kip, he said, Looks good. Going to be scheduled? We're going to make a good try, sir, Tap winked. I'm betting on you. Kip watched the Makapu chief go forward to where Pete was drinking his coffee. They were out of earshot, so he couldn't overhear the conversation. It might have eased some of the tension he felt if he had. How does it look, Pete? Pete grinned. Know the difference between the mob and professionals, Tap? Experience and motivation. What my kids lack in experience, they make up for, and more in motivation. They want to do a good job. They've worked harder than any adult crew I've ever had. If you hired a contract crew and put them on the bottom, after the usual preparation, I'd give them an hour's lead and still beat them by half a day with my kids. They're that good? They're that ready. They've practiced every move, every procedure, until they've worn me out just watching them. You're about to see a team operation that will open your eyes. How's Kip doing? Pete chuckled. Inside, he's probably wound up tight. On the outside, he's cool. He has sense enough not to check too often on his team leaders. He keeps hands off, except to let them know he's around, because he knows they're ready. When he senses that one of the kids is feeling shaky, he lets him know how much confidence he has in that kid's ability. And he does it very neatly, and without being obvious about it. Tap smiled. Is he still referring the decisions to you? He'd like to, Pete chuckled. He still hasn't enough confidence to make major decisions without first trying to get my views. No one has ever thrown in the ball so completely before. But when he sees it's up to him, he doesn't muddle around. He laughed, recalling some of Kip's poorly concealed reactions. Sometimes when I drop a load on him, he feels persecuted and gets mad. And he's going to show me. He grabs the ball and runs with it. He'll come out of this operation with a lot more self-confidence. But it won't be overconfidence. He's a born engineer, has an instinct for it, and he's a natural leader. But he has a lot of humility, so he won't realize it for a long time. He's a fine kid, Tap. You sound really sold on him, Tap observed. His own judgment of Kip coincided with Pete's, but he wanted to draw the engineer out. I was sold on him from the first day. You know how I size kids up. He was bright and alert. He listened instead of talking. When I pinned him down on the reason for using torque wrenches, he showed me he really understood the principle. The other kids had answers good enough for a mechanic, but not for an engineer. How about the others? Tap asked. Well, Chuck is solid. He'll be a good, dependable craftsman when he gets through with his education. Sound, but not inspired. Ski and Umi will be great technicians. They're meticulous, hard workers, but not creative. McKay was bright enough, but thought he already knew the answers, so he didn't bother to use his good brains. Kip's my boy, Tap, although I won't spoil him by saying so. That's why I leaned on him pretty hard to see if he could take the pressure. He took it, even though he didn't like it. And he was good enough that I could let Johnny ease up a little. I'll be watching, 
Tap said. Pete, any idea what McKay might have tried? Not yet. I was tempted to dive for a quick look last night, but decided not to. Skip show. I'm keeping hands off completely, unless I see he really needs help. And would you like to make a small bet he won't? I never bet against a stack deck, Tap said with a grin. Jimmy Clary spoke over the bullhorn. It's now 7.45. 15-minute warning. The sandsucker hose was lowered to the bottom, and Ann Bloom directed the small crane operator to swing a net full of supplies, including spare scuba tanks, out over the water. Kip was trying to watch everything at once. He saw Carol Burquist and Fran Duncan huddled together next to their rack of foam plastic jugs and went over to them. Got any Cokes in one of those jugs, he asked. I'm thirsty already. Carol was obviously nervous. She blurted, What if we do it wrong, Kip? Not a chance. After getting the plastic through a two-inch hole in those oil drums, pumping the stuff through the hole that Kane made will be like playing. Besides, you two smart kids ordered enough extra stuff so you can make up for any accidents. I just wish everyone was as well prepared as you are. He left them feeling better and walked to the ship's wheelhouse just as Jimmy announced, It's five minutes to go home time! A glance around told Kip that all was ready. He shivered suddenly. In a moment, Project Kahuna would explode into action. He saw that Pete was watching and that Tap Pryor had taken a position at the rail. Kip went to the four aquanauts. You lucky mugs, he said. Any of you guys want to change jobs? Too bad for you, Keeper, Ski said, grinning. Sato shook his head with mock sorrow. Hate to leave you topside with all the grief, son. Pancho and Chuck just smiled. Kip shook hands all around and said, I'll be watching while you make the Ilikai fly like a bird. He turned to Ann and Bob Richards. Hey, Team One, Kai? Kai, Bob echoed. Ann smiled. See you below, Kip. Tom and Jenny were ready to photograph the divers entering the water. He gave them a thumbs up and went to help Julie put on her twin tanks, then swung his own over his head and secured the harness. Jimmy called a time check and counted down to one minute so watches could be set. Kip pulled on his fins and set his mask on his forehead. He looked around. Everything was as ready as the mob could make it. A knot of nerves between his ribs was tight, like a watch spring wound too hard. He smiled at Julie. The smile was more confident than he felt. This was her day, even more than his. She was almost shivering with excitement, her brown eyes dancing. A buzz on the bullhorn and then Jimmy Clary. It's eight o'clock! Kahuna time! Divers down! Divers down! Kip and Julie hit the water as one. He felt the shock of its coolness, surfaced, pulled his mask down, put in his mouthpiece and dove leading Julie around to the bubble machine. It was sinking slowly, the four aquanauts around it. Johnny Keanu was keeping close watch, but leaving it to the boys. Ann and Bob dove past, heading for the wreck. Satisfied that the habitat was not having difficulty, Kip followed, with Julie sticking so close that their fins brushed occasionally. The Ilikai was below. Kip saw a patch of darkness, and his breathing quickened. He put more drive into his fins and shot downward, swallowing to equalize the growing pressure in his ears. The darkness was a shadow, a shadow in a deep hole. 
His outstretched hands touched coarse sand. Julie bumped into him as the divers suddenly saw the meaning of the hole. Kane was gone. Willis. Kip clamped down so hard on his mouthpiece that his teeth hurt. He stayed just long enough for a quick survey. The shape of the sand pile showed that Willis had excavated by hand, shoving the sand up into a big heap next to the canoe. Then he and his friends had pulled Kane through the bottom, breaking off small pieces of the canoe as they enlarged the hole. The break would have to be mended and the keel strengthened before the frame was put on. With one part of his mind, Kip began to plan how to do it, but at the same time he was cursing McKay and wondering how they would ever find the statue of Kane. Taking Julie's hand, he led the way to the surface. He had to talk with the adults about this. Julie was white with anger and disappointment as they got onto the diver's platform. Kip, it was Willis! Yeah, it had to be. No one else would have touched Kane. The local Hawaiians wouldn't have gone near it. Come on, let's talk to Pete. Pete listened, rubbing his sunburned nose as Kip sketched what they had found. Mackay Engineer had been afraid ever since news of Willis's visit to Hana of what his divers might find. He was upset, and he hurt for Julie. She obviously was deeply shocked. But, as he had told Tap Pryor, who was listening quietly, this was Kip's show, and now Kip was under real pressure. Pete was sorely tempted to make it a bit easier for Kip, but he quieted the impulse. Kip would meet worse crises than this in his career as an engineer. He asked Kip calmly, What's your plan? Kip had expected to be told and not asked. Who did Pete think Kip Morgan was? Some senior engineer with all the answers? Anger fluttered up at Pete's callousness. Okay, if he had to do all the thinking and make all the decisions by himself, he'd make them, right or wrong. And if he guessed wrong, well then let Pete clean up the mess. My plan is to keep going, he said coldly. What else can we do? There's still the Ilikai to raise. We'll just jump forward one step. Kane was first on the list. We can skip that part, but we have to strengthen the middle section around the hole where Kane was. If you have some very light steel plate and a way of burning holes in it for bolts, we'll put on steel sheet braces. For answer, Pete summoned one of the Holokai crewmen. Kimo! We have some 316 steel plate in the supply room. Get it, with whatever else Kip needs, and fire up your torch. He'll tell you what to do. Kip was still angry, he said curtly. Thank you, and went off with Kimo and Julie. Pete and Tap grinned at each other. See what I mean? Pete asked. Tap did and said so. About the statue, he added. I have an idea or two. So did Pete. The two compared notes and agreed on the probable course of events. They further agreed that they would keep hands off for the time being. Kip, meanwhile, got paper and pencil and sketched two pieces of plate, three feet long and a foot wide, then marked in eight places where the holes were to be burned through. He told Kimo the size and thickness of the bolts he would need and described his idea for washers to protect the inside wood of the canoe. Then he rejoined Julie. We'll do something about Connie at lunchtime, he assured her. Right now, we have to get the crews on the bottom organized. Julie managed to smile. I'll be patient. The rest of the mob had been watching and listening, but had stayed out of the way. Word of Connie's disappearance had flashed through the ship like a wind gust. Now they crowded around Kip and Julie. 
We'll get back on schedule, he told them. There's nothing we can do about Kane right now. We have to keep going. On the bottom, he summoned the group into the habitat where they could talk more easily. They crowded into the cylinder, and the buzz of talk reduced as soon as they dropped mouthpieces. Hold it, Kip held up his hand. We'll forget Kane for a while and get on with raising the Ilikai. Anne, Bob, and Pancho, let's get the bow excavated first and start on the frame there. Chuck, Ski, Sato, we'll have some steel plates ready pretty soon. Help with the bow until they come down, then shift to the center section and use the plates to reinforce the keel around the hole. We'll leave enough of the hole to get the foam plastic through. You'll have to punch guide holes for, from the bottom up, then use a hand drill from the top to enlarge the holes for the bolts. He dried his hands and made quick sketches in the back of the habitat logbook to show what he had planned. Any questions? There were none. The change was only in the canoe section to be covered first, and in the patches to mend the keel. Okay, let's go, Julie. Kip lowered her into the water through the open diver's hatch. She stood with her head and shoulders inside the habitat and put mask and mouthpiece in place, then submerged and swam out between the keels. Kip dropped in after her, and the others followed, moving at once to the Ilikai. Kip and Julie returned to the surface and removed their gear. Kip went to the wheelhouse, where Jimmy Clary had his headquarters. He went over the dive schedule. Teams would rotate each hour and 40 minutes, except for the Aquanauts. He had planned a half hour for Anne to get the first plastic and mesh into place, after Kane was rescued and before the first pipe team dove. The lost time up till now just about equaled what he had planned for getting Kane to the surface. Hold to the schedule, Jimmy, he instructed. By ten minutes to one, all surface divers would have used up their initial hundred minutes. Anne and Bob would start the afternoon dives at a quarter to two, with one hour on the bottom. During the fifty-minute break, he and Umi had work to do, he found the Hawaiian boy sitting on a bit, staring toward the shore. What do you think about Kane, Umi? I think that Kane, he don't fly away, Umi said grimly. That Willis, he steal Kane. Kip doubted that Willis would have taken Kane away without the Hana Hawaiians knowing. The statue hadn't been taken back to Honolulu by air, but it was possible that the thieves had gotten it to shore, returning later by truck or station wagon from Kahului or Lahaina. No stranger could move through the Hana district without the locals being aware of it. Umi and Johnny had agreed for the kahuna to be standing by. When Kane was brought up, the kahuna would be notified and would perform the necessary ritual to take the curse off the statue. It would make the Hawaiians happy, and Kip thought it would add a nice touch of exotic ceremony to the project. We need your kahuna to help us, Kip said. Umi looked up, black eyes wide with surprise. You want Kahuna to help? If he can, where is he? On beach. He tell come noon. He be wait at Lua place. We go see him? At lunchtime. Will you come, Umi? I come. First I dive. Team two. Good. Should we take anyone else? Maybe Johnny Kanu. Kip hurried off and found Kimo. The crewman had cut the steel place to size and was burning bolt holes with his acetylene torch. He had a pile of large bolts and nuts and square pieces of fiberboard with holes in the middle to be used as washers inside the canoe. Kip found a sack and put the nuts and bolts and washers inside. He collected a gimlet for making the initial holes 
a hand drill and bit, and wrenches of the proper size. When Chemo finished with the two plates, Kip thanked the crewman and tied the plates together and went to go find Julie. They put on swim gear, then Kip lowered the steel plates to the bottom with a length of line. Taking the sack of supplies, he and Julie jumped in and finned to the Ilikai. The down teams had made fast progress. The bow was clear of sand and covered with sheet plastic and wire mesh. The pipe team was making easy going of building up the frame. The center section, where Connie had rested, was excavated. In the canoe's interior, Kip could see the edge of the seat or platform on which Connie had been placed before the waves tumbled him over. Chuck and Ski swam to the mending plates and brought them to the canoe. Kip turned the bag over to Sato. As he did so, Tom and Jenny finned down cameras going. They had been in and out of the water since the first divers entered. Kip and Julie watched as the aquanauts began patching the canoe. Chuck and Ski held a plate in place and Sato pushed the gimlet through a bolt hole in the canoe bottom. Pancho enlarged the hole from the inside with a hand drill. As Sato pushed a bolt through, and Pancho put a washer and nut on and tightened the nut. Satisfied, Kip led Julie topside again. They got hot chocolate from the galley and sipped it in companionable silence at the rail. He had told her about his talk with Umi and insisted that she stay on the ship to rest during the noon break. There was nothing to do until then. When Jimmy called time, the frame was nearly three-fifths completed, a quarter hour ahead of schedule. Johnny Keanu was ready with the westward shore boat. Umi and Kip got into slacks and shirts and sandals and joined him. Umi's kahuna came to meet them as they docked at Hana. Kip had been prepared for a wizened old man, a practitioner of the mumbo-jumbo school of wizardry, and he was astonished. Kioni Pohoku was a huge middle-aged man whose hair was just starting to show a trace of gray at the temples. He stood at least six foot six and had the build of a pro football guard. He wore creased yellow slacks and an aloha shirt of flaming red flowers on a light green background. Kip thought except for the clothes, he looked like the reincarnation of some great chief of the days of Kamehameha. The kahuna puffed with great dignity on a cigar that fit his great size and acknowledged Umi's introduction of Kip. He greeted Johnny as an old friend. Dark eyes surveyed Kip with a calm interest. What's your trouble, son? Something about Kane? Kip still couldn't believe it. He asked, Are you really a kahuna? Kioni Pahaku smiled, his teeth gleaming white in his dark face. By right of birth and training, what did you expect? Some witch doctor waving a feathered kahili around and muttering abracadabra? Don't worry, I can perform just as effectively as any of your holy priests or ministers. Kip gulped. Yes, sir. Our trouble is that Kane has disappeared. I thought, well, I don't think anyone could have gotten Kane out of Hana without your hearing about it. That's true. His heart leaped. Do you know where he might be? A massive arm waved toward the ships. Out there, under the water. Are you sure, Kioni? Johnny asked. Very sure, Johnny. The Hardy kids came and brought a rubber boat with them. They inflated it, went out to the buoy tap place, and I guess they spent almost two hours on the bottom. They had triple tanks. I couldn't see what they were doing, of course, but I did see them throw a rope around the rubber boat. From the way it squeezed together, 
I'd say it had plenty of weight on it. That weight, he gotta be Connie, Umi stated. I think so, Umi. Well, they came, had lunch at the hotel, went back out. One of my people inspected the rubber boat and said that the rope had worn the rubber thin in one place. The Harleys got a tire patch kit from the service station and patched it before they went out again. This time they didn't use the rope. I'd say they were down about an hour. When they came in, they tried to hire a boat with a boom, but no one around here was going to fool with Kane. I saw to that. Kioni Pohaku relit his cigar with an expensive butane lighter. A while after they came back, the biggest kid folded up, couldn't stand. It was obvious that they hadn't decompressed properly, and the big boy got bent. His friends weren't hit so badly or escaped entirely. It hit the big one in the knees. You know that often happens, Johnny. The joints frequently get hit first. The kids called a taxi and went to the airport. I haven't been back, so Kane is still out there. We gotta find that Kane, Umi stated. Keeps pretty wahini. She's got plenty sad about that Kane. You think he's Makai? Kioni Pahaku smiled. Sure, Umi, it's alright. Young Mr. Morgan, you find Kane out there. When you do, send Umi to me. I'll come to the Holokai and do what's necessary. I mean no disrespect, sir, Kip said. But is anything really needed? The Kahuna sighed. The big trouble with Harleys is that they never understand anyone's belief but their own. And sometimes they don't even do a good job on their own. If I'd arrived chanting Hawaiian prayers and wearing a malo with a feathered cape on my shoulders, you'd probably be a lot more convinced. I wasn't objecting, sir, Kip explained earnestly. I just want to learn. I thought Hawaiians were Christians. Of course we're Christians. Most of us, anyway. But the old beliefs go back a lot farther than Christianity for us, Kip. They're a part of our cultural heritage, just as Kane is. The homage that we will pay Kane with a ritual isn't meant to be unchristian. We're making a tribute to our ancestors by recognizing an idol that played a very important part in many of their lives. We will do this out of respect, not worship. You understand? Kip was greatly impressed. Yes, I understand. He paused for a moment. And that makes what Willis tried to do seem even more... Kioni Pohaku smiled and shook his head. No one can take a people's heritage away, Kip. Some, like yourself and your friends, can do much to increase the knowledge of that heritage. But no one can steal it. Send for me when you locate Kane. The three thanked the kahuna, said goodbye, and sped back to the ships. Kip's mind was busy. He thought he could see what happened when Willis tried to steal Kane, but he wanted to think more about it. They would find Kane. Somehow. By late afternoon, the Ilakai was completely framed. Between dives to check on the work, Kip pondered the problem of Kane and kept coming back to the conclusion he had reached after talking to the Kahuna. Operations closed for the day, all dive time used up. The Aquanauts were very tired after so many hours of bottom work. At dinner time, the Ilakai mob took their plates to the Holakai and crowded into the wheelhouse. They could talk with the Aquanauts via the phone line in the umbilical cable while the four below were having TV dinners cooked in the microwave oven. It's great down here, Ski reported. Nice and quiet, no one to bug us. Presently, they said their goodnights and left the four Aquanauts in the care of Tony Angelo's crew who would stand watch through the night 
on the pump generator that supplied the habitat. Julian Kip lingered on the westward's deck for a moment. The sun was just setting, and they watched it go down. It was early, but no one was inclined to stay up. They were all tired from hard work on the bottom of the sea and from the strain of concentration on the job. Kip hadn't seen Julie really smile since they had found Kane gone. He wanted to bring that happy smile back. Tomorrow, he said, we'll get Kane back for you. Her eyes widened. Kip, are you sure? Pretty sure. Willis made his try, but he failed. Go on to bed, partner, and think about this. Kane can't be more than a few hundred feet from where we're standing now. Tell me, she begged. Kip related his discussion with the kahuna. Then he put forth his own theory. First, they put a rope around their rubber boat and probably managed to get Kane off the sand. Then they towed him away, but the weight was too much, and the boat probably kept bouncing on the waves. The rope rubbed a hole in it. They patched the hole but didn't dare use that boat to lift Kane again because if it lost its air, they couldn't use it to hang from when they had to decompress. They didn't decompress enough anyway and Willis got bent. The second time down, they probably hauled Kane across the sand for a while and then ran out of air. I suspect the five minutes in their air reserve wasn't enough for decompression. Anyway, when you figure time to excavate the hole and get Kane out and their troubles in moving him, it's pretty clear they couldn't have gotten very far. He's out there and not very far away. Kip got his happy smile. <laughs>